called Nehemiah. I don't know if you know him very well. His book comes a little bit early in the, in the Old Testament, but actually it's in the poetry, it is in that section that precedes all the stuff that happened. This is a post-exilic book. Uh, the people of God have already seen the kingdoms fall from the north and from the south, and they've gone into exile. And uh, after going into exile, Nehemiah is living in a faraway place. He's one of God's people, but he feels like a stranger. And uh, it's really interesting how God has a mission for him, one that you'll see as it unfolds. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, 5, and 6 today, but uh, to highlight it in your, in your bulletin, there are just two key verses, and we'll be reading the rest of them as we go along. But one of the key verses is from chapter 4, verse 10, and uh, let, us reverently pub, uh, let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant and infallible word as it was given to us in the originals. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. That's the main verse. But I want to be able to tell you that this message is going to end in a good place as we come to the Lord's table. If you look at chapter 6, verse 15, you're going to be able to see that that was not the case. The text says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. So when you realize how things come together, the message today is, to whom are you listening? To whom are you listening? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may you take this text, this interesting passage, and I pray that you might apply it to our hearts as we look at the stories of other Christians, those who have trusted in God. Lord, may we see not only how they responded, how they failed, how they repented, and how that sets a pattern for us, but we may, may we also see the same God the covenant-keeping God, who was able to work with these frail creatures, these special creatures. And you were able to do things that seemed impossible to men. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will do a work in us that seems impossible, that you will get the glory. And I pray that that might be seen, especially as we we finish at your table. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Keep your Bibles open because we will be reading several passages in the book of Nehemiah. Um, but I wanted to, as I said, the title of this message is, is uh, Who is Listening and, and, and What is Being Heard? If you think about those two distinct little questions, who is listening, there is an emphasis on the idea of the ear, that you can actually hear something, that information can permeate into your being. We don't go around deaf. In the movie, you can see that once that guy lost his sight, uh, there was a little bit of humor, but there was tears in my eyes. What it would be like to be able to lose what you had. But in the idea of listening, what if your ears were deafened and you couldn't take in any more? You never heard another sermon preached. You never heard the word of God being read to you audibly. It's fascinating. The first focuses on the ears and the second is what is being heard, focuses on what goes through those ears, what hits the eardrum and then resonates into your brain. And you translate that into information and data and insights. My encouragement to you is to take notice of what goes in your ears. 
Uh, Growing up, we had a little song in Bible school, Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For there's a father up above looking down in tender love. My question today is, what's going through our ears? In Romans chapter 10, it says, how can you believe on the one of whom you've never heard? Now, of course, if you go specifically to the Greek text that says, if you haven't heard Jesus speak to you, how can you believe on him? You see, there is an importance for us to hear Christ. And the Bible says in James that we ought to be slow to speak, but quick to hear. And so when you think through it, even the uh, Samuel, the great prophet of old in 2 Samuel 5, he says, behold, it's better to listen, to hearken, than it is to, to go through the motions of worship. He says, obedience is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And he spoke that to King Saul. You see, how important is it for us to be listening and to be listening to God? So when you digest these kind of things, I I made an application because in the news this week, there was a lot of uh, stirring because of what took place in Dallas, you know, before what took place in Orlando. But now we have five policemen who are having funerals. The police are now listening since five of them are no longer able to. In every locality, their ears are now opened. If you carry a badge, you get this sense that there's a message. They're hearing a message that maybe it's open season. But then there's another group that are, there was another person who was listening to another message. And they heard news reports from Minnesota and Louisiana that there were some individuals with a little bit more color who also had funerals. And the message that they heard was that there's not a safe place if the police are around. Everybody's being told things. The messages are flying all around. We are bombarded through our computers, even through our phones. There are messages permeating us. What should we be listening to? What should we be listening to? Um, It is clear that some of the the essence of some of these storylines is that we hear that the police are unfair and we hear that a person chose to pursue what he deemed to be fair. We also hear that the world is not a safe place. Are these things that are they true? To some degree, they are. This world is not the safe place. That's why Jesus told us, don't let your heart be troubled, because there's another place. I go to prepare that place for you, and I will come again. Those words we echoed at the memorial service this week. So we offer a message of hope. We tell people that you need not despair. You need not be overly consumed. You need not be condemned, because if you have a heavenly father, then you are forgiven, and you have a home that will not be affected by the big tornadoes and the big uh, uh, cyclones or whatever they call them over in Japan and China, Taiwan. In this text today, we are learning about what is being said and what is being heard. Nehemiah is an interesting character. He tells us this in four different storylines, if you want to say four layers, if you will. And, uh, and, and if you're keeping notes, you can keep track. One of them is the, is the communication of calling. The second one is the communication of conspiracy. The third one is the communication of complaining. And the fourth one is the communication of crying. 
When you look through these texts from chapter 4 to chapter 5 and and to chapter 6, where the wall is too great of a task to build, but then finally it gets finished, I want to be able to show you that Nehemiah does something that you might not notice unless you look closely. He uses a lot of quotation marks. He says, this is actually what was said. He just doesn't say about it. He doesn't just generalize it. If you go through text after text after text, there's quotation marks. Because what was said was even more significant when you realize who said some of these things. So the first thing I want to be able to focus on is the communication of calling. The whole reason why Nehemiah is even mentioned in the Bible is because God started by communicating a calling. And if you turn to chapter 1, I want you to be able to follow along with some of the texts. Some of them may appear. Uh, but in chapter 1, verse 4, as soon as I... Uh, excuse me, I'm going to start in verse um, 1. The words of Nehemiah, the sons of Hakaliah, how now it happened in the mouth of Chislev, in the, in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, I was in the palace, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, which is down where Jerusalem is. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the, the exile, and concerning the city of Jerusalem, verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there is in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying that if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, the, of, the, uh, parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name to dwell there. Now, when you look at this first communication, you can see clearly some of the details in what's being said. He wants God to do some hearing. And when we do some praying, that's what we want too. We want God to be a listener. But I want to be able to tell you that in order for God to hear you, it's because he first communicated with you. This calling that came upon his life was pretty powerful. God gave Nehemiah a compassion for his homeland. He was interested in what was going on. So when the news came, he perked up. He paid attention. Secondly, God gave him access to this information. Because if you know the story of Nehemiah, what was his job? Was he a great construction worker? Probably his hands were softer than mine. He was the king's cupbearer in a foreign land. So basically, the only danger that he had is indigestion. Yes, there was a possibility that someone would have spiked it or put poison in it or something like that. And so if he would eat some of it, then the king would know if it was okay or not. But really, 
Nehemiah had a cool job working in the government. God put him there. Because if he had not have been there, he would not have had access to some of the information that was given to the king. God gave access to this information about Jerusalem. God put in his ears, he put his ears there within hearing of of what was going on. And thirdly, you can see that God gave Nehemiah a calling. He said, I want you to do something. Nehemiah couldn't flee from it. This was something that he was burdened with. He had a great job. He had job security. He wasn't going to run from that. He probably lived pretty close to the palace and everything else, so his commute wasn't too bad. I mean, all the things you would want out of life. Then God said, I want you to do something else. I want you to take care of my homeland. Wow. I want you to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. God talked to him. And I want you to know that when you look in chapter 1 and you see how Nehemiah's prayer to God, O God of heaven, verse 5, you are great and awesome. You keep your covenant. You have steadfast love with those who love you. You keep, uh, and, and, and those who keep your commandments. You see, he had a relationship with God. And so when God said to him, this is what I want you to do, this first communication was powerful, a calling. I believe all of us have a calling as well. You may not be the one called to stand up on the stage, but you're the one that's called to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, for good deeds. He's given you a task. What is it that he's called you to do? Secondly, when you go through this, God calls us. And he transforms us because he gives us that purpose in life. But secondly, you hear Those who communicate, who haven't heard the call of God. These are people who don't know God. These are the people of Romans 1 who imagine their own imaginations about what there is out there, whether it's a higher power or not. They give the glory of the creator to the created things. They are just like the people in the days of Noah who say, let's eat, drink, and be merry because this is all there is and tomorrow we we die. You see... When you look at the communications from those people who are not up in, growing up in the church, they're not growing up with the scriptures, they have never heard the gospel message. They are naysayers. And if you look at it, it's pretty powerful what the naysayers will say. And if you look through the text in chapter 4, 5, and 6, you're going to see uh, there are four particular things that these people get into. The communications that they give towards God's people, and I think some of you would have experienced it today Because when you live in this world, is everybody a Christian? Is everybody that names the name of Christ a Christian? I don't know. Only God knows what's going on inside of souls. The only one I hope that you really know for certain is the one that you're going to be uh, uh, responsible for when you take communion yourself as you examine your own heart. These individuals, had uh, they did not know Christ. They did not know heaven. They did not know the God of truth. And so there are four things that they do in their communications. First is a relentless taunting. Secondly, there is an aggressive scheming. Fourthly, or thirdly, there is a deceptive diplomacy. And fourth, there is bribed counsel. Now you're going to say, wow, what is going on? Aren't people just nice? Isn't it great just to be a Christian and live out your life by the beach? Well, and as I said, poor Nehemiah 
I don't want to say he was poor, but God called him to do something that was not going to be easy. And I believe he's called all of us to do something that's not easy too. So he comes into this world, and if you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, you're going to be able to see what transpires immediately. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was happy. Sanballat is one of these characters who is not a Jew. He is not a God-fearer. He is not a Christian. He's a pagan. Uh, It says when he heard that the wall of Jerusalem was going to go up, he was angry, he was greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. I'm trying to tell you that the way that that Nehemiah tells the story, it wasn't boring. You can tell he was angry, but it wasn't just like a passing anger. It was an anger that boiled up. And then on top of that, it turned into, I'm going to do something about it. And the first communication is this relentless taunting. They were angry. And so they asked five questions in their taunts. If you follow along, you'll see it. He said... uh, (laughs) What are these feeble Jews doing? Those people, what are they doing? You can just hear the mocking in his voice. Secondly, he asked the question, will they restore it for themselves? Are they just doing this because they want to please themselves? They want to be comfortable? The third question, he says, will they even sacrifice to make this happen? Or it might even be the implication, are they going to try to rebuild the temple too and start their religion back? Fourthly, he says, Will they finish in it in a day? Kind of like mocking and say, (laughs) you guys are idiots to even start. And fifthly, he says, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Now, if you're God's people and you're making the journey to get out there to Jerusalem and you see the state of God's people, you see a state of ruin. It's deplorable. And when you get there and Nehemiah is pretty upbeat and excited, and yet the people around are not excited for you to be there. They actually get out there and mock you. Not just once, twice, three times. It's relentless. They keep coming. They keep coming. They keep coming. And you almost want to, you almost want to tell them to go home. Secondly, they have aggressive, excuse me, they have aggressive scheming. Uh, If you look at verse 7, you can see that, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being closed, they had two responses. Now, all five of these groups, they get angry. It's not just Sanballat, the individual who stirred people up. Now it's groups and groups and groups. They've got bigger, bigger uh, communities. And secondly, they scheme. They are all plotting together, verse 6, verse 8. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. It's really interesting that the second thing that the world tried to do, after they saw that their jeering didn't cut it, the people of God still went forward and they started making progress. Now they said, we have to literally stop them. And they plotted, what can we do to stop them? And they made plans. They just didn't sit back on the chair and watch the football game. They said, we're going to do something so that the kingdom of God doesn't go forward. So what they think the kingdom of God is, is not going to happen. And you find that they even said, we're going to send marauders. We're going to send a group in there and they're going to get them and they're going to catch them when they're not expecting it. And we're going to do destruction and stuff and we're going to destroy their morale. We're going to do all those kind of things. 
schemes of men. Just like Psalm 2. The Lord is in the heavens and he may laugh, but when it happens, it doesn't feel that way for Nehemiah and his group. There, there was going to be sneak attacks. The third kind of communication was this deceptive diplomacy. And when you look down in chapter 6, you're going to see that the wall has been made progress. They've already built half of it up now. And in chapter 6, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom the Arab and the rest of our enemies had, had heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, then number two, verse 2, Sanballat and And Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let me meet together at this place in the plain of Ono. That that name, Ono, should just tell you. Oh, no, don't go there. (laughs) The plain of Ono is a place not to go. Because there was deceptive diplomacy. There was now not... They hadn't been able to succeed them by stopping them to build. So now the wall is basically built, and these guys say, Hey! Buddy, old friend, come and meet us. Let's have a detente. And so as they get together to plan, he picks this nice place for them to go. And of course, God speaks to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says, I'm not going. Oh, no. (laughs) And he understands that they had actually plotted to kill him. That when they were going to seduce him out from the protections, then they were going to slay him. Because if if you take out the leader, then you can have the rest die. And so it's really a subtle maneuver that the, that, the, that the people that don't know God are doing. You have to commend their, their creativity. It's fascinating. But they, the one that tops it all is the final one that you see down in verse 10. The bribed counsel. Now, when I went into the house of Shem- Shemiah, the son of Deliah, Deliah the son of, uh, you know, you get it. He was confined to his home. In other words, he he didn't have mobility like the rest. So when he comes to meet with this guy who's a prophet, the guy says, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now that sounds really reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, you're talking to a guy that's a spiritual guy that knows God, and he says, come to church. And when we go to church, we'll find a safe place there, a sanctuary. We'll close the doors because they're going to come and get you to kill you if you don't go. Now, the irony of all this is that this was a plot to make sure that the rest of the walls weren't finished. And when he realizes that they paid money to this Shemiah, they said they wanted deception to permeate even into the understanding of God. So that Nehemiah was being attacked on this front, on that front, on this front, and even from inside. How subtle the world works. Now, when you understand the communications that Nehemiah was up against, this was not the most difficult for him. The third layer of communication was the complaining. And this is the text from chapter 4, verse 10. And if you have your Bibles there, go to it. It says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build the wall. And then if you look down in verse 12, And at that time, the Jews who lived near them, they came out from all directions, and they said to us ten times, You must come and return to us. You must come and dwell with us. Now, what's going on here? I call it the complaining. 
There's two sets of complaining. The first is that there's, it's just too much. It's just overwhelming. And the second argument, which comes in chapter 5, it's just not fair. You see, now this is where the pain actually comes in. I think Nehemiah expected that the people who tore down the walls many, many years ago were not friendly to God. So when he was going to come and rebuild the walls, I think he expected that there would be outsiders who would plot, who would scheme, who would deceive, who would bribe, do those kind of things. But the thing that I don't think Nehemiah was really eager for was in verse 10, where you had the people that came to help build the wall are showing up and they're going to build the wall with him. You know, obviously they're leaving the palace, they're leaving a lot of the comforts of of safety and all that kind of stuff, and there they are, and look at what they first say. Verse 10, it's just too much. There's too many stones, there's too much burnt, there's too much this, there's not enough of us. Sometimes when God gives us a calling, there's a tendency for us to go that path. We look around us, it's just too hard. And then when people come around and they say, come over and just stay with us. It's easier. Ten times, just come and live with us. Just leave the walls alone. Don't burden yourself with it. It's just too much. I told you that's one argument that the people of God have. The other argument is just not fair. In chapter 5, there is an explanation that he says, hey... Do you realize that we're giving our best? We're, we're trying to build the wall. We're overcoming our frustration that there's too many stones and it's too much of a mess and too much. So in chapter 5, if you'll read along with me, you'll see how beautiful this comes out. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives. Uh-oh. It's really bad when the wives get involved. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives... What would make everybody get so upset? Verse 2. For there were those who said, With our sons and with our own daughters we are many, so let us get, let us get grain and that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And verse 4. And there were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. If you notice at the beginning of each of those verses, there are those who said, there are those who said, and there are those who said. Do you hear the ears ringing? All the content that is going into the ears from the people inside the community. They are frustrated. They are not thrilled. They're saying it's not fair. I'll summarize it for you like this. They have sacrificed a lot to come and to rebuild the walls to follow this guy, Nehemiah, who says, this is what God told us to do. A lot of people might not have embraced all that, but they're there and they're, they're going to do it. They, they have that love for the homeland too. God has called them. And so they're coming. It's not been easy because of the outsiders. And now they're confessing with an outcry complaining that it's not fair because even when we do our best, even we have struggle getting food for our families. And then on top of that, when we do work with the people in our community that have a little bit of money, guess what happens? They charge us interest. And so in order to keep alive during this time of the rebuilding, we have to mortgage what we actually own. We have to give up our title to our property so we can do this. And he says, even some of our kids are being forced into slavery. Now, who's forcing them into slavery? It's the people of God, not the outsiders. Wow. 
that's why there's a great big outcry from the moms and the dads, from the husbands and the wives. It's not fair how this is unfolding. And when you start to get into that mode, it almost makes you lose the joy of being there and fulfilling what God calls you to do. There were those who said, there were those who said, and there were those who said. It makes it tough. But I want to finish with the fourth point, which is the communication of crying. Instead of, instead of having the calling from God, instead of focusing on the, the, uh, the manipulation and the maneuverings of the outsiders, instead of focusing on the complaining of those on the inside, look at Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah is crying. He cries out in anger twice in chapter 4, verse 1, and in chapter, uh, excuse me, in chapter 5, verse 6, and in chapter 13, verse 8. When the only time that we hear him crying out really in anger is that he joins with the, with the moms and the dads, with the husbands and the wives, and he says, it's just not fair, God, and he speaks up. And when you look at how he cried out against the injustice that people were hurting themselves inside the Christian community, if you, if you take notice of it, I believe it is in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But is it not in our power to help it? For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials to the leaders of our community, and I said to them, you are exacting interest from your, from your brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. He pointed out the sin in the camp, and they were silent. They could not find a word to say. So then Nehemiah said, I'll say something more. You can hear me. He says, The thing that you are doing is not good, Ought you to walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? He says, you have it within your power to do what is noble and right that makes a witness that we love one another so that the taunts of the enemies might be silenced. What I find when he cries out is four simple prayers. In the first prayer, which is found in verse four, hear, O God, for we are despised. When the taunting is coming to pass in chapter 4, he asks three petitions. He says, turn back their taunts on them. He says, give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Help them to feel what we're feeling. And he says, thirdly, he says, don't cover their guilt. I don't know if that's very Christian. But Nehemiah was pretty upset with the outsiders. His second prayer comes in response to the plots to send enemies in night to ambush them. And he says, all the people gathered together. And if you look at verse 9, we prayed to our God. And God gave us the wisdom to set a guard so we wouldn't be surprised. And they ended up keeping their clothes on 24-7 so that they'd be ready to fight if ever there was a surprise attack. The third prayer comes at the end of verse 8. No such thing has, has ever been done be, before. Uh, this is when there was the, the trickery going on 
with the diplomacy, the fake diplomacy. And, and he says, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. He says, when I see that they're trying to plot even to kill me, he says, strengthen my hands. And he cries out to God. He says, my, ho- my help is coming only from the Lord. And his final prayer is at the end when he says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess who spoke with them and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me be afraid. The strange thing about his outcries to God is that he's letting go. And he says, God, you take care of it. I don't have to take care of it. You take care of it. I might give you some counsel, but it's totally up to you. So as we wrap up, What are the messages that you are hearing? To whom are you paying attention? Have you heard the call from God? Have you heard the, the, uh, shall we say, the attacks? Have you heard the the aggressiveness, the scheming, the taunting, the, the, the bribery? Have you heard those things from the world? Have they pressed in on you? Have you heard the complaints? Or have you joined in the complaints? Or are you one of those who are crying out to God? God, you take care of it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, we can see that God has a marvelous plan for salvation, that, that, we, that the world is never going to embrace it on their own. They can't hear it. According to 1 Corinthians, they're spiritually deaf. They cannot discern when the Spirit of God is speaking. When we're preaching, they don't hear it. It doesn't make sense to them. It's foolishness to the Greek. It's a stumbling block to those who don't get it, who have the wisdom of this world. But God is going to see us through our weary world, and he's going to save to the uttermost. The idea that the wall could be built in 52 days is a powerful testimony, a powerful testament. And as we wrap things up, I want you to understand why the building of the wall was important. Have you ever thought, why is it important? Let's see. The wall was being constructed around the old city of Jerusalem. There were those of us that were there this January, and we saw the old city. And when you go and you see the old city, some of those stones Nehemiah and his crew probably helped to put up. Why is that important? Why would God send them on that dangerous journey, enduring all those hardships? Because at the beginning of Nehemiah's prayer, way back in chapter 1, he was confessing sin. And nobody can fix sins except God. And if you understand, even the sins that all the people had done in forsaking the will of God, forsaking doing what was right and beautiful, all those sins, even as he said, my house and my father's house, we've all done these sins. And he acknowledges and he openly confesses, which we all need to do, I need to do. We are not righteous in our own. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. Even when we try our best, it falls short. We could never save ourselves. And so when he's building these walls around Jerusalem, the thing that you need to understand is that the Holy One is going to come through those gates. Psalm 24. Lift up your gates and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? And if you know the song, the Lord, he is the King of glory. For on that Palm Sunday, many years later, they're bringing Jesus on in to the community. He's come from the Mount of Olives. He's gone through the Kidron Valley, and he comes up through the gate. And as he enters into the city, the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're coming through the gates that Nehemiah 
had sacrificed to build because Jesus was coming to Jerusalem heading to the cross, which I believe was just outside the city wall on Golgotha. You see, the whole idea of the forgiveness of sins is not because you build a beautiful wall. I have to tell that to Trump. It's not because of any righteous deed that you have done. There is, there is nothing that you can do to improve on your salvation because you can't get your salvation by works. It's not by works of righteousness. For by grace we have been saved through faith in Christ. That faith is a gift from God, not of works lest you would be able to boast. And that faith is placed in Jesus Christ alone. And as we look to the table, the passage from Hebrews, as you see it in your bulletin, it says, let's look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he went through those gates to go to the cross so that there would be the forgiveness of sins. Is that only some sins? Is there any sin that Jesus cannot forgive? As we come to the table today, he bids us to search our hearts, confess our sins, and to make sure that we have clean hands and pure heart before him. Let us pray, and as the elders would come forward. Oh, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to confess our sins. When we think of the passage there in 1 John, We only deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us if we do not confess. Lord, I pray that you might stir us. If we say that we have fellowship with you and we walk in darkness, then we're liars and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we simply deceive ourselves and we're liars. The truth is not in us. So the the information or the, the admonition, if we would confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For if we say that we have not sinned, we simply make God a liar and his word is not in us. In preparation for communion today, I'd like us to have a few moments of confession. O Lord, in the awkwardness of this silence, we have many things to lay at the foot of the cross. Lord, if any of us would dare think that we are worthy, we have misunderstood what grace is. Lord, 
as the scripture tells us, Isaiah the prophet told us that our righteousness, our good deeds, they're all tainted with sin. That's why he can conclude that there is none that doeth good. Or as the analogy of the sheep, we have all gone astray. We've all done what's right in our own eyes. Oh, Lord, I thank you that the confession of sin is what the word means. Con is with and fess. It is to communicate. Oh, Lord, we agree with you about who we are. Our shortcomings, our weaknesses, our feeble knees, our attempts to make decisions, our poor judgments. Lord, we thank you that when we confess these things, you are faithful to forgive us. Lord, that is the whole nature of the reason why Jesus went to Jerusalem to go and pay the price that we couldn't pay, to give a life that was perfect for lives which are not. One who kept the law totally, who also kept it passively. For the wages of sin is death. And thanks be to God, he was willing to pay it for us. Lord, as we come to this table now, we pray that you will set apart these common elements from their normal, typical use and anoint them, appoint them for your purpose that we might be nourished in the faith, that we might understand afresh the reality that the blood of Christ had to be spilt for us and that the body of Christ actually had to perish, it had to die because that's the wage that had to be paid. Lord, I pray that we will be refreshed as we come to the table. Sometimes it seems like an awkward thing on the day where many have said there's irreconcilable things. But Lord, I thank thank you that there is nothing that is irreconcilable between us and you. I thank you that there is unity in Christ. For there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Lord, there is one love. And you demonstrated it when you paid for each one of our sins in faith. Lord, bless this communion to the end that we might be nourished in Jesus' name.